morning we're starting a uh, kind of a short series on offering hope to others. And what I want to look at this morning is this idea of hope for change in light of what we see in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. We're going to look at that in just a moment, but this idea of change is something that many of us are already familiar with. Uh, most of you probably wanted to make some changes at the beginning of the year with New Year's resolutions. Sometimes those don't make it to February 26th. Um, but we have doctor's visits and they say, hey, you need to change your diet or you need to do this or that. Or you Change is an inevitable factor in all of our lives. But one of the things I've found is that oftentimes when we think about change, we think about the how-to steps instead of the who. What I mean by the who is who we are. And when we divorce the who we are from the how-to-do, the how-to-do typically does not work out well. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. If we look at all the things that Scripture tells us to do without remembering who we are in Christ— we will not be able to do the things that we're called to do. And it's exactly what the Apostle Paul highlights here in Colossians 1 that I want us to think about this morning regarding this idea of hope for change, substantive change in our lives. And so if you have your Bibles, if you'd like to follow along on the screen with me, we're going to be in Colossians 1 looking at verses 24 through 29, and I would invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of the Word of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, is the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae. He writes, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy, energy Christ so powerfully works in me. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon this study this morning. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us, Lord, and as that closing song mentioned, we, we desperately need you. Lord, I ask that you would make your presence, Lord, felt in our midst today as we reflect upon what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Lord, and that we would, Lord, be changed, not because of our own efforts, resolves, and habits, but because of who we are. We ask this. In the matchless name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, in Christ's name, amen. Well, there's a lot to unpack in Colossians 1, 24 through 29, and we're not going to unpack all of it this morning. We're going to be looking specifically at verse 27, the end of which says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, which was made up primarily of Gentiles, more honestly, pagans, that's what Jews viewed them as, these pagans turned to Christ. And in turning to Christ, 
they turned away from everything that they had known. And I think that we kind of miss what this means because oftentimes when we think of making a change in our lives, it doesn't require us to turn away from everything we knew, everything that we grew up a part of. But one of the things that early early first century scholars have noted is that to change one's belief was often like changing one's ethnicity. You were born, you grew up as a pagan, and as a pagan, you had certain habits and procedures and customs and things that you were required to do and expected to do. So to turn away from paganism wasn't just to add Jesus to your life and keep on doing the things that you wanted to do. No, it was to be transformed into a new person. And as a result of this change and this newness that you received, Previous connections that you had in your relationships oftentimes would fall off. People were asking, why don't you go to the temple anymore and sacrifice meat to the idols? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? What has changed in your life? And eventually what happened was people began to persecute those that changed. Now you go, why would they do that? Why wouldn't they just be tolerant and say, you know what? You believe what you want to believe and I want to believe what I believe. Well, it was because in the first century, if you were part of a region and you were a part of a particular people, what happens is eventually people changing and living a different way made the regional gods mad. And so if one year the crops were not as strong, the assumption was we've got people within our community that have angered the gods. And so we need to deal with these people that have angered the gods. And so you, you see how this change was significant. It just wasn't, hey, I've, just, I've got this new idea. Allegiance to Christ was full allegiance, abandoning a life that they had always known and becoming a part of a new community. And as a result, they would be persecuted. And they wanted to find ways that they could limit the persecution. So if you read in other chapters in the book of Colossians, what they would eventually do is they would say, okay, well, I'm going to add things from my pagan background to the Christian faith. This is a word we call syncretism. It's where we're trying to reconcile aspects that are in contradiction to Christ to Christianity so as to try to please everyone. And you know what happens when you try to please everyone? You please no one. And so Paul is writing them to say, you need to remember who you are. You've got to remember who you are in Christ Jesus. For it is only in Christ Jesus that you are going to find the strength to make it through suffering, to have hope in this life and the next, and ultimately to persevere when things are hard. And that's what we're going to see in this passage this morning as Paul turns the attention of his audience to Christ in them, the hope of glory. There are three things I want us to see this morning. So if you're taking notes, you can make this point number one. In Christ, there is hope in the midst of our suffering. In Christ, there is hope in the midst of our suffering. Paul was a weird person. Christians often are. Listen to the way Paul describes his own experience in verses 24 through 26. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. That is weird. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking 
in regard to Christ's affliction, which just as a side note, does not mean that he felt like there was any atoning sufficiency that was lacking in Jesus' example, but rather that the church in Colossae had not had the privilege of seeing the risen Christ as the apostles had. And so Paul, through his own suffering, was making up a visible representation. He was making up what was lacking to the church in Colossae by showing in his own suffering the willingness of Christ to suffer on their behalf. But he says, I rejoice in this. How do you rejoice in suffering? What is it? He says, I recognize it's because I'm a servant that's been commissioned by God himself to present the word of God to you in its fullness to disclose to you, the people of God, the goodness of what God in Christ has done for you. Paul recognized that what has been given to him in Christ far outweighs what he is losing by connecting himself to Christ. Paul writes about this in greater detail in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read this. You're going to find this on the screen as well. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. He's just talked about all the greatness of his former ways in Judaism. And this is what he says. But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For her sake, I have lost all things. He's lost everything, and he says, but I've gained Christ. And Christ weighs more. He outweighs in blessing and hope and salvation. He outweighs the things that I've lost. In fact, he goes on to say, I consider them garbage, refuse, the King James dung, which always made us laugh in middle school whenever we would read that in Bible class. For those of you, that's cow manure. Some scholars, maybe even something a little more colorful than that. He is trying to jar them to the reality of what has happened because of what he has received in Christ. All the things that people would have wanted, Roman citizenship, all of it lost because I have Christ. Oh, what I've gained in Christ. It says that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know him and the power of his resurrection and the participation of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is so important for us to remember as followers of Christ, especially when we suffer. There is this false gospel that is on Christian radio and Christian television and in Christian bookstores that tells you that you will not suffer if you have enough faith and if you follow Jesus. Got a problem. We've got a big problem. Are you telling me that Paul did not have enough faith? I need to hear from you this morning because this is so much a part of our culture. We need to, we need to divorce this from our thinking about Jesus. There are some of us that have been taught and made to believe that, oh, you only suffer because you don't have enough faith. Hogwash! We will suffer sometimes when following Jesus, and the suffering is not worth what we have gained in Christ. 
Paul wants us, he wants the church in Colossae to see that there would be many times in our lives when following Christ will even result in suffering. And if we are not aware of this dynamic in the Christian life, there will be times when we will be tempted to believe that because we are suffering, that means God is angry with us or God is not happy with us or that God has abandoned us. Our struggles in this life, however, be they in our marriages, in our families, in our careers, in our relationships, in our health, in the health of a loved one, these do not mean that God is not still with us and that God is not still working in us. I love the song that we sang. He is for us. You are for us. You are not against us. He is not. That is a lie from the enemy to make you doubt and think that somehow he has abandoned you because you are suffering. No, we know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. We know him and we know a closeness and a nearness to him. God is with his people even in their sufferings. I've said this before and I'm just going to quote it again. You'll hear this from me many times. I love and appreciate this quote by C.S. Lewis on the problem of pain. He talks about this, that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God is at work even in our pain and in our suffering. And it is oftentimes in that pain and suffering that he demonstrates his relentless faithfulness to us. How is it, though, that Paul could have had hope in his suffering? How do you have hope in your suffering this morning? He tells us in the next verse, in verse 27. In Christ, there is hope in the midst of our suffering. Secondly, in Christ, there is hope for our present life and our future life. Look again. To them... God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because of Christ, there is hope right now in our personal lives, in this present life. I want you to reflect on that for a moment of what Paul is saying. Take just a second to to think about what he has said. Christ in you you, the hope of glory. It does not say Christ to be in you one day, does it? It does not say Christ was in you. It is a present tense, active reality, Christ in you right now by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What's the significance of Christ being in you? Who is Christ? Ask that question. He is the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the one who came and was born under the law to redeem those of us that were under the curse of law. He was the one that speaks heavens and earth and all the universes into being and not only speaks them into being, but he upholds them, he sustains them by the word of his power. He is the one that came and lived a perfect life of obedience to his Father in complete submission to the will of God. Yet he was crucified as a sinner in the place of sinners like you and like me so that we could live free from the bondage of sin and shame. 
But more than that, three days later, he rose. The stone could not hold him. He rose from the dead. He's conquered death. The first fruits of the resurrection. And he's ascended on high. Which means, being at the right hand of the authority of heaven, he has all authority in heaven and earth given to him. That's the Christ who by the Spirit is in you right now. You know, we talk about resurrection power, stirring in my bones, which is an echo of Scripture. We were living even in the sense now in resurrection strength. It's because the first fruit of the resurrection, Christ himself dwells in us by the power of the Holy Spirit if you're in Christ today. There is no more powerful force or being that you can conceive. And and he dwells in you right now. That's power for change. That's strength to endure. But you say, I don't know if I feel this, Pastor. I don't know if I feel the presence. I hear you. I understand. Some mornings we wake up and you don't feel the presence of God. I mean, that's a true statement. But that's part of the problem with basing our status before God on how we feel. Now, do not hear me saying that feelings and emotions are not important. They're important. We're told that we're to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants us to love Him with our affections as well, not just our minds. Okay? So I'm, I'm not dismissing feelings. I'm just saying that feelings can be a little misleading. I don't know about that, Pastor. Ever had a dream where you felt like you were falling? Anybody? Show of hands? Yeah. Were you falling? Nope, you weren't, unless you were rolling out of the bed, in which case that was not a dream. (laughs) You felt it, you knew it, you woke up, ah, you know, I'm having a heart attack, what's going on? Feelings can be helpful, but they're not always the most reliable guide, which is why God, through his word, is reminding us about the things that even when we don't feel it, it's still true because he said it and he speaks with clarity, truth, and certainty. You are in Christ if you have trusted Christ, believed in him, whether you wake up in the morning feeling like it or not. And so one of the things that we have to do as believers is to remind ourselves to preach this news to us. I might not feel it, but I'm in him. I might not feel it, but he is in me. The power of God working through the person of Christ as the Spirit of God has filled me and sealed me according to Ephesians 1. Is that work in me even when I don't feel it? And there's going to be days that you don't feel it. But that doesn't make it any less true. God is faithful to his word. But what about our future life? That's hope for the present. What about the future life? Because if we're only good now, it's a problem. If we don't have hope for the future, Paul addresses this Christ in you, the hope of glory. These truths are not limited to our present life. Now, I'm going to admit, This idea of glory in the Apostle Paul, it's a little complex, and we're not going to look at every detail of it this morning. I just want to deal with what it means when it relates to the return of Christ. When Christ returns, 
according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be forever and fully transformed in an instant. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. And then John talks about it in John chapter 1, verse 32, where he says, Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there's a transformation that takes place when we see him, when the eyes of faith become eyes of sight and we behold him. But while we cannot fully know what it will be like when Christ returns, we can know in part. And one of the things that we can know in part is that we will be transformed into perfect, righteous beings that are no longer subjected to the curse of sin. What does that mean? Think about the things that that's going to mean in the future. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more heartbreak, no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more disappointment, no more injustice, no more sickness, and no more death. That is the life that is coming soon for those that have placed their trust and their hope in Christ. And I think that in some ways, this is how suffering and pain in this life weans us from hoping in the things of the world. I think that's part of what Paul is doing when he writes to the church in Colossae, because he's going to address it in Colossians 2. He's going to tell them, don't lean on and trust in the elemental things of the world to find hope and find peace and find security. Put your trust in Christ, not the shadowy things, but the substance that's Jesus. Hope in Him. Find your your joy and your satisfaction and your hope for present life and eternal life in Christ Jesus alone. No amount of money or medicine will ever be able to provide us with what we have and will gain in Jesus Christ. And I believe that what this does then is it works to produce within us a perseverance and endurance, which is what Paul addresses in the final point. In Christ, there is hope for lasting change. In hope, there is, in Christ, there is hope for lasting change. He is the one that we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. There's a process that's taking place that everyone would grow from immaturity to maturity in Christ as they receive the instruction that Paul strenuously contends to give them with all the energy so powerfully working in him because of Christ. As Paul describes the impact of Christ dwelling in the believers in Colossae, he reminds them that God is committed to working in them a deep, lasting and abiding change in their life. And Paul knew that this was a labor, but it was a labor that was not in vain. Parents, I want you to hear this. Grandparents, I want you to hear this. Marriages, I want you to hear this. Singles, I want you to hear this. Where you are right now might not be where you want to be, but that does not mean that God has abandoned his plan to bring to fruition the fullness of his salvation in your life. The work that he began in you, he is faithful and just to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And you say, amen. That's, I mean, that's, that's praise to him. 
He's the one that's going to finish the work. And you go, but I'm just so bad at finishing things. Good news. He's not. And so I want you to be filled with that sense of hope that says, oh my goodness, so I don't have to walk out with another how-to list today. Yes. The how-to list follows the who, and the who is that you are in Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus is in you, the hope of glory. He is faithful. I'm struggling. He's faithful. I feel like he's abandoned me. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will bring you to maturity on the day of Christ Jesus. These verses should fill us with hope because of Christ. If you are a believer here today, God wants you to live filled with the peace and the joy that comes from realizing that Christ is in you, working out His purposes, ensuring that you will be brought to full maturity in the faith, in the day that Christ returns. You will make it because Christ is in you now. And those of you that may be here today that are, that are wrestling or struggling or asking, am, am I in him? There's all kinds of ways that we could answer that question. Am, am I in him? Have you trusted him? Have you believed that he is who he says that he is? That he lived the life you couldn't live? That he died the death that you deserve to die? And that by his resurrection life, he's going to raise you from the dead perfect one day as well? You say, yes, I believe that. I believe he's forgiven me. I believe that, but sometimes I don't feel it. If you believe that, the reality is you are justified by faith in the Son of God. You are not justified. You are not made right or perfect before him because you are great at performing the duties. You are made right by grace through faith. It is not by works lest you boast. If you were made right before God on the basis of how well you did, you would go, well, I'm going to boast in this. But the reality is, is that you are made right before God on the basis of His grace through faith. What does faith mean? It means taking hold of Him and saying, I trust in what He has done for me. That I cannot save myself, but He must save me. If that's what you're trusting this morning, this hope, whether you feel it or not, is true of you. The other reality is, is if you said, I have never put my trust in Him, is there still time? Oh, there is. In fact, there's reason to believe that according to 2 Peter, that God himself may even be holding off the return of Jesus just so that you would turn to Christ this morning. You say, you're kidding me. Yes, he is not slow to fulfill his promise, but he is patient, longing that all would come to repentance. That's what it says. It's the word of God this morning. It may very well be That you came today and you have not trusted him, but today is the day and he would welcome you and heaven would sing. We sang well this morning. I appreciated you singing well. But we were just joining in the praise that's been going on for ages. And they would welcome you and it's the call that I would invite you to this morning to put your hope in him, to trust in him. We're going to be closing in a few moments. There are all kinds of people that will be at the front that would love to pray with you and help you take that next step. But don't leave without knowing you can know this hope. But here's my final point for us this morning. This series that we're a part of 
is, is for, for you, Copperfield Church, as, as partners here. And we use the language of partnership here. It, it's, it's, it's synonymous in one way with the word membership. I'm not changing anything up on you, don't worry. But what I, what I want you to see is that oftentimes within the world, membership means I pay to receive something. Partnership, however, has this idea of I am actively participating in that work. So we use the language of partnership over membership because we want you to recognize that you're not paying professional ministers to do the work of the ministry. No, you are a partner, a a body part, and that you have been given gifts and you participate in the work of ministry. And so as a partner, as a member here at Copperfield Church, this idea of giving hope is part of one of our motives as a church. And how do we give hope? We oftentimes think about that as evangelism. And evangelism can be very overwhelming at times because you're thinking, wow, I'm going to take this person to lunch and they're not a Christian and I don't know exactly how I'm going to have this conversation. Like, how do we get from what do you want to eat to you're a sinner that's headed to eternal condemnation and if you don't repent and believe today, that's your destiny. Like, that's a little awkward. It's not false, but that's a hard conversation sometimes for people to make. And so here's what I want us to see this morning. As we as a church are resolved to offer or to give hope to others. One of the ways that we're able to do this is to sow seeds of hope in the lives of those that we relate to. So what does that mean? I think that it means taking some of these principles that we've seen, hope in our sufferings, hope in our present life and in our future life, and hope to endure, and sowing that into the conversations and the soil of the lives of others by pointing them to the hope that we have in Jesus, which I think is what Peter has in mind in 1 Peter, whenever he says to live such a life that the people that observe you will ask about the hope that is within you. It's interesting, we tend to use that verse to ground our ability to go out and kind of confront people in apologetics. Nothing wrong with apologetics, love apologetics. We look at that verse, it says, for the defense of the faith. Absolutely, we defend the faith. But what we fail to recognize is that verse actually assumes that people are going to look at our life, see something different, and ask us, what's going on? So that what we actually need to be thinking about is not only are we ready to, quote unquote, give an offense for the the hope that lies within us, but that we would live in such an outward way about our hope that people would begin to observe and go, look, you're suffering. I know things are going on in your life, but you react and respond different. What is it? Which is the invitation to say, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about what he has done. So that we might eventually get to that point to be able to say, how would you receive Jesus? You repent of the sins that have left you empty. And you put your trust in Jesus and you receive eternal life. Can I help you do that? You don't have to lead with that if you're not inclined to that. But we can all be sowers of hope in talking about what Christ has done for us. So I'm asking you to join me in having resolve moving forward in the weeks to come that as you're having conversations, that you would live honestly and openly before others and that you would show them how the hope of Christ is transforming and guiding your life, that they may be provoked to say, what's different about you? It's Jesus what's different. It's the hope of the world. That's the hope for real change. Would you pray with me this morning? As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equipped for Good. Thanks for listening.